That is my second favorite accountant in the movies. Oscar Wallace from The Untouchables. Tiffany Couch, well, she has something in common with Oscar. They both catch thieves through the science of numbers and understanding the behaviors of people who steal in a company. Tiffany is a forensic accountant. She's been practicing through her firm Acuity Forensics since the early 2000s. She's the author of The Thief in Your Company. Now, I know I say this a lot, but this one is really, really good. I'm Mark Gandy. This is CFO Bookshelf. My visit with forensic accountant Tiffany Couch is coming up next. I read the book, The Thief and Your Company, in 2021, and it was intriguing. I read it in about three sittings. It went that fast for me. Before we jumped into her work, which you're going to enjoy hearing some of her stories, for those who are accountants, I wanted accountants to hear how she got started in this business. Well, mine was an accident. Um, You know, I went to school to be an accountant. It was the safe bet. It was the thing that, you know, was the language of business. And, you know, 25 years ago, there was no such thing as a fraud examiner. I mean, there were, but not anything you heard about. There was no forensic accounting classes. I don't even think I had one professor use the term fraud in any class, right? I don't know about you, but I didn't. And so I got out of school. I went to work for a CPA firm and the two guys that I worked for did business valuation. And I had never heard of that either. Right. But, you know, private business needs business valuations for all sorts of reasons. And we had a woman come in and uh, she I'll never forget her. She was beautiful. She had the biggest diamond I'd ever seen. Drove a Jag. You didn't know that. You you didn't notice those things, did you? No, 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 no. Not as a young woman myself who was, you know, house poor and about to have her first baby. You know, you don't notice any of those things. <laughs> and uh, she said, my husband's divorcing me and he says we have no money. And as a very young woman and looking at this woman, you know, obviously there was some money somewhere because she was wearing it and driving it. And long story short, uh, her husband did have money. He uh, was part um, uh, Native American. And so he was selling fireworks and tobacco products and, um, you know, basically literally taking home bags of cash and not reporting any of it on their tax returns. And so I figured that all out. And that was in the year 2000. And I remember thinking to myself, I don't know what this is called, But when I grow up, uh, this is what I want to do. And so I just started getting all of my continuing education credits in um, fraud. I was going to say, when did forensic accounting even become a household term? I don't, I do not remember. I would say the less than 10 years because I started my firm in 2007. I started it as a forensic accounting firm. All of my accounting friends and my family said, you're crazy. No, you're, you're never going to make it. You need to have a tax practice. 
And I said, no, absolutely not. Because I, people need to know who to come to. Just like you go to the doctor for a heart problem or you go to the doctor for, you know, a pediatrician for the kids. Um, you know, I a hundred percent believed that you've got to specialize in something. And I specialized in this and everybody thought I was crazy. I, I would say in the last seven to 10 years, it's become a little bit more of a, oh, I understand what that is. I don't have to explain it as much anymore. It's certainly become the new sexy thing that the kids out coming out of college want to do. Um, but it certainly was not that way when I started. I have an opinion reading your book from cover to cover with extreme fascination I and push back if you want to. I would say the number one trait, required trait, to be a productive and effective forensic accountant like you, Tiffany, is you have to have this inquisitive itch that's never satisfied. Would you say that's the first trait or maybe the second or third needed? I would say that that is the first trait. You absolutely have to be somebody who doesn't take things for face value and not because you're a jerk or not because you're not a trusting person, um, but really because you've just got to make sure that there's not anything else out there that you haven't figured out. One more thing about your story, and it nearly broke my heart. I found myself wanting to jump into my Kindle and ring the neck of a certain professional do you know what I'm talking about that led you to start your I own do. firm? I was I, do. I was angry. I was mad mm-hmm. and I was just totally uncalled for. So you don't have to bring yep. that up. It is in the book, but that's what led you to start uh, your forensic accounting practice. And I'm glad you did. Well, I am glad I did too. You know, I had it all planned out. I was going to make partner at the big firm and, um, you know, I ended up with a working for a great firm and a really bad boss. And when I blew the whistle on him, you know, they wanted, they, they were not kind enough to offer me a job as an auditor. But by then I was, I knew that I was not an auditor, that that's not what I wanted to do. And I also knew that people, that business owners in the world needed, they needed somebody with the kind of experience I had, but they didn't need a big firm experience, right? The, the high rates, 18 people on a job, that there are lots and lots of small business out there that needed people like me. And that's really how I started my business. And, you know, now I do work for the small guys and I work for the publicly traded companies too, and everybody in between. Again, the name of the book is The Thief and Your Company. And I want to bring up some new insights or some old opinions that resurface. And I don't know if you use this word, but I want to talk about the elephant in the room. Imagine getting together at some chamber event. It could be 200 people. I'm guessing the conversation is not going to be about theft maybe strategy, uh, a new product rollout, something really cool. Theft never comes up. It's, in my opinion, it's the elephant in the room. And you hit on this a lot. I mean, a lot, directly and indirectly. I want to know why, Tiffany, why this topic is not raised. In, In my final opinion, before I shut up, every small business owner in America should be required to spend one hour with you 
before they go for it. Now, you wouldn't have time. That's just my opinion. <laughs> I appreciate that. But I here's what I've learned, and I learned it slowly over time, and, and the, these patterns emerge. Um, but one of the reasons I don't think – there's two reasons I don't think that the term uh, employee fraud or, or theft comes up. One is um, – most business owners I know genuinely believe that it would never happen to them. So that's number one. I don't need to deal with it because it would never happen to me. And then the second thing is the shame when it does or or that it did in the past. And so I certainly don't want to uh, embarrass myself in front of my colleagues or, you know, fellow business owners by letting them know that I was so, quote, stupid or foolish to have let that happen to me. And, you know, what I found out is that, you know, most people don't realize that these people who are stealing from them, they use their very ability to be liked and to be trusted to perpetrate their crimes. And so it is a, it's a crime of breached trust. It's not because you are a stupid or foolish business owner. It really is, um, it's a different kind of nuanced crime. And this leads to a couple other insights. I want to quote, this is a quote from the book, the crime of breached trust is more injurious than the missing funds. I had not thought about that. What a profound and true statement. We'll be right back. Money is all around us, and we think about it more than almost every other aspect of our lives. But how can we make more of it, and what's our drive for building wealth beyond just the numbers in our bank account? Join us on the Make More podcast as our host, Matt Heslin, brings to you a dynamic lineup of experts in the world of investing, business, health, and beyond. Together, they unpack the secrets to not just surviving, but thriving in today's economy. It's about more than just wealth. It's about crafting life experiences, seizing opportunities, and building a legacy. Subscribe now to the Make More with Matt Heslin podcast and join us every week for new expert insights and inspiration. It's 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 100% true whether I'm walking into the smallest of small businesses or nonprofits or the largest publicly traded company. Because what's happened here um, is that, you know, if I were going to rank everybody from, from the day before the fraud is uncovered, from the most trustworthy to, to the least, your fraudster is going to be in that top three every single time. So they're this trusted person. They usually have institutional knowledge. Uh, the reason the, my book is called The Thief in Your Company is not just because they're your employee, but they're often in your inner circle. They're in your company. They are in your heart, quite literally. And so, yes, it is, um, it is more injurious. And if, if, all of us as humans have probably had somebody breach our trust or have had certain expectations of people and those have been deflated. And so if you can think of that in your own personal life and then bring that into a business, um, you know, it's those things that we don't usually talk about that I really think we should be. There is, so I'm glad to be here. There is another new insight most of us, and I have a background in public accounting too, and I think we did go through uh, the fraud triangle, but you brought yeah. up another kind of a triangle that I'd never thought about. It's called 
the fraudster's pattern. Could you explain that real quickly? So here's here's the pattern that I see. Um, it's it's the pattern of I, uh, especially in a small business, I'm a really busy business owner. I'm really good at being an accountant or I'm really good at being a lawyer or I'm really good at being a plumber or whatever it is. I make signs. I do whatever it is that I do. And gosh dang it, I hate that back office stuff, Real, right? I don't even like doing my own accounting and I'm a forensic accountant. And so what do we do? We, we find these people who are wonderful. They come in and they just take all of that burden off of us so that we can go and do what we're good at. And often because A, I'm not good at the accounting or B, I don't understand it and C, I'm so busy. I'm just so thankful to have brought that person in. And I see this over and over again where that person becomes indispensable to the business owner. Um, they're often very, they're, they're often very friendly with all the customers and that sort of thing. They don't always get along with their coworkers, but what the coworkers are seeing is how much the business owner loves this person. So the coworkers aren't going to say anything if they do see something. And so this person becomes indispensable. They collect the mail. They answer the phone. They, they become infinitely trusted and it lulls the business owner kind of into a, a sense of safety of, gosh, I've got this taken care of. And, uh, unfortunately it's that sense of safety and that hands off nature that allows that person to have full access without being checked. And that full access without being checked will often um, or unfortunately can lead to that person using the business's money for their own personal benefit. You mentioned the employer's rationalization, which again, I had not really thought about that until I read your book. I mean, yeah, I completely get it. Can you share, again, obviously names omitted, but can you share a couple of stories? And for you, you probably have hundreds of them, but are there a couple off the top of your head that they rationalize and this could have been prevented or the loss could have been minimized had the CEO or the owner had not rationalized, this could never happened. Uh, one of my favorite stories, it's very similar. You started off with the chamber, but this person was in Rotary with me. I was in Rotary for many years. I would get up every once in a while and have to give a spiel about what I do. And, and they invited me to be the lunch speaker once. And I talked about fraud and fraud risk. And he called me, I don't know, not very long after that, six months, a year. And he said, Tiffany, I just, I listened to you and you were fascinating and you were great. But I drove away from there going, gosh, I am so lucky, you know, that, that I'll call her Sally, that, you know, I have Sally because I'm the exception to the rule. And he said, and you told me about the person that is the first one to work and the last one to leave. You talked about the person whose lifestyle didn't make sense with the amount of money that, you know, we paid them. You told me all of those things during that, or you told us all of those things during that rotary meeting. But I believed I was the exception to the rule. And um, he had seen some red flags of her hours worked. And he thought that she was the most loyal person he had. And that's why she worked from, you know, first person to leave, last one 
last one out the door. He knew her lifestyle didn't make sense. She was a big gift giver and gave gifts. And, you know, she was a single woman um, and, you know, had a modest income. He gave her a nice income, but certainly it didn't make sense with what she was driving and where she lived and all of that. And um, so he really rationalized those things away, thinking he was the exception to the rule. Um, that was one. And I just can't even begin to tell you how many people, um, and, and let me go back to him. He thought he had a payroll issue. He, he caught her overpaying her payroll. Okay. And he said, I just want you, Tiffany, to figure out how much payroll she overpaid herself so I can ask her to pay it back or we can do an insurance claim. And I said, okay, great. But I, I then said, well, doctor, how's business? And he says, I, you know, business is fine. And I go, no, tell me how's business. And the reason I asked him that is the reason I ask every client that how's business. Cause every client knows how business is. And this is what he said. I'm seeing more patients and I can't take Fridays off anymore and go golfing. He said, I'm thinking about hiring another doctor because we have so much work. He said, but I'm taking home a lot less money than I ever used to. But we don't need to talk about that, Tiffany. Just go figure out the payroll issue. And I said, well, what else did she have access to? He told me that she took all the money to the bank, that he co she collected all the money from the front desk, and that she put the deposits together and took the money to the bank. And long story short, she went to prison not only for overpaying her payroll, but for stealing nearly half a million dollars of cash from his business. And he knew it. He knew it all the way deep down into his soul because his business, business was good on the top line. But that cash flow wasn't making any sense, right? And he had rationalized it that I'm just a doctor, so I'm not that smart with business. Or, you know, maybe my costs have go up. He didn't understand it and rationalized it all the way. There's about five or six fraud schemes that you mentioned in the book. Just just pick one off the top of your head. What's what which scheme do you feel like is the most prevalent in your work? It's, if there was one thing that I had every single client do, it would take away probably 85% of all frauds. And that is this. Every single month I want you to get your bank statements and cancel check images and credit card statements in paper. I know that sounds archaic. I know it sounds uh, almost like a waste of paper. But listen, the number one fraud that people perpetrate is they write checks to themselves. They use your debit card and credit card to make their own personal payments. And it's all right there on your bank statement, inside your cancel check images or on those credit card statements. And nobody's looking at them. These banks, these credit card statements, everybody wants us to go to electronic, but we don't have time as business owners to go online and load every single check image or scroll through all of those um, transactions. But if you get a piece of, if you get a bank statement that's a few pieces of paper long, it's much easier in 15 minutes a month I can go through my bank statement, credit card statements, and cancel check images for most small business, right? 15, 20 minutes a month. And I can make sure that all of the money 
Number one, I can make sure that the money coming in is about what I think it should be. But really, I can also make sure that all the money that's going out is for my own, my business's benefit. And the other benefit is it's showing my accountant or bookkeeper that I'm, I'm double checking. But you guys, nobody does that anymore. And here we are with the oldest fraud scheme in, in the world continuing to go on. And it's helped along because of this idea of everybody going um, to online banking. Coach Tiffany, I made a note in the book when you mentioned that recommendation. My note says also, and I recommend this to smaller business owners I work with, not only get that statement, if it's online, pick one transaction, just one, or it can be two, and then go yep. to the bookkeeper or the accountant and just say, what is this? Because That's right. Because it, it really, like you said, it shows that they are paying attention. And if you think about it, when did, if for the parents out there in the world, I'm the parents of two grown boys, when did your kids get in trouble the most? When we were busy and when we were not paying attention and when things got really quiet, you know, that four-year-old's into something that he, he or she shouldn't be into. And um, they know when mom and dad aren't looking. And unfortunately, the fraudsters of the world know when their bosses aren't looking or they figured out the loopholes. And when we are looking and when we let people know that we are, they're going to be a lot less likely to perpetrate that crime. And if they decide to do it, they're going to be caught a lot quicker, a lot more quickly. And we're not going to be into this, uh, you know, big loss that most of the time... I'm, I'm finding, you know, six figures by the time you're hiring me or somebody like me. I have a curiosity, nosy question. I want to get into prevention before we wrap up. But last year we had Aaron Beam on the show, fascinating individual. Ah, and, yes. and I smiled because you mentioned Aaron in your book. But Aaron is a fascinating yeah. individual, very likable. He went to jail uh, for about a year uh, because of financial statement fraud. And we talk about the why behind that. And for those who are not familiar with the name, he was a former CFO for Health South. And now he uh, goes around the country talking about uh, prevention, uh, raising fraud awareness. My curiosity, nosy question, Tiffany, is do you run into financial statement fraud very often or is it maybe not as prevalent in your practice? It is um, in in. If you look at the ACFE report to the nations, financial statement fraud is less than 10% of all frauds perpetrated, but it is the highest loss. So you're looking at millions usually by the time those sorts of frauds are uncovered. And I do like to speak about it because most of us, I think, think about financial statement fraud as a Wall Street problem. And that's not actually true. If you have a business that is, especially one where you're, you know, you're probably a mid-range business. So you might have controllers or business operation people or salespeople or others who have some component of their wages or compensation tied to those financials. Then yes, you are going to be at a higher risk for financial statement fraud because there's an impetus there. There's an impetus for companies to cook the books for the bank, right? Or investors that that's true. Or if you're an investor, you, you need to understand that people cook the books so that you'll invest money into their business. But if you're a business owner 
and you've tied compensation around those financial statement outcomes, then you do need to be a little bit more aware of this kind of scheme and how those things are perpetrated. So again, people can cook the books to benefit themselves to make sure they get their stock options or bonuses, etc. And I have uh, investigated several of those in the past as well. Great point. Let's talk prevention before we wrap up. I, yep. I gave you a high five. You didn't know it, but I gave you a high five. The, and I call it the audit myth. So the audit myth is what, Tiffany? Again, this is brilliant. Yes. So the number one fraud, the number one, um, let's say the audit myth is this. If my, if I get a clean opinion from the CPA firm, then that must mean there no fraud has occurred. And I cannot tell you how many times I've walked into a place that has had decades of clean audit opinions and I have uncovered massive fraud. All right. So I don't want anybody to be lulled into this idea that because my auditors didn't find fraud, there is none. That's actually not true. Interesting, because I hear that over and over and over again. I Again, this is opinion. I would say forget the audit to the bank. Banks, you're wasting your money. Instead, come up with these 15 to 20 agreed upon procedures do them about four to five times out of the year, hire a firm like yours, that's going to be far more effective. And then just do a, a compiled statement that's full disclosure. But the, right. to me, those agreed upon procedures to help catch or prevent or assess internal control weaknesses, I just think that would be far, far better. But no one's listening to, to me. Nobody's listening. And, and by the way, it's cheaper to do it that way. It's unbelievably, it's unbelievable. You know, people will think a forensic accounting must cost a lot of money. And in, in some cases it does, but there are a lot of things we can do to catch fraud like that because we know where to look. We know what's going on, right? We know what these schemes are. This is not rocket science. And if you know what the majority of the schemes are, there are certain procedures you can do to verify that they aren't occurring. And you're going to have a much higher assurance uh, in terms of your fraud risk in that way uh, than you are all day long uh, with an audit, a clean audit opinion. Regard and that's because, you know, fraud, fraud is happening way underneath materiality. And auditors, and what most people don't understand is that auditors are looking at materiality and then they're also taking a random sample. And a random sample is never or rarely going to unravel a fraud. I was going to say a random tiny sample at that. Sample, yeah. Regarding prevention, is tone at the top, and I love that terminology, is tone at the top, is that only for big companies or does tone at the top apply to even the three partner practice of maybe 15 or fewer employees? Tone at the top is, is critical. And really what I call a, a culture of honesty, which I've, I've coined since I wrote the book, but the culture of honesty is the most important thing that you can do. And you want people, if they see something to say something and you know, the, the rules are equitable, no matter if I'm the CEO or the janitor. And so, yes, um, it's absolutely important. And, um, you know, as humans, I think it's normal to play favorites, um, but we, we can't do that in an employer-employee situation. I'm guessing you get to work with a lot of young accountants out of 
CPA firms, small CPA firms, larger. And depending on the type of work you do with them, is your opinion, and I want to know if it meshes with mine, do some of these young accountants still a little clueless when it comes to internal controls? If you said, go give me the best controls for receivables or payables, are they going to be in that deer in the headlights syndrome? Is Internal controls, is that still a tough concept for even accountants? I think it's a tough concept for accountants. And I, you know, what I'm finding is that the, the younger accountants coming out of college, they seem to be really knowledgeable about, uh, you know, all of the, the theory and the pronouncements and all of that. And it seems that the accounting and really let's just call it bookkeeping, accounting, internal controls, the processes that that, that, that seems to be diminished. And so that's been my biggest hurdle, uh, at least as an employer or just as an observer, that there seems to be a disconnect where I could come out and I could, you know, a lot of us could do a ledger and T accounts and all of that kind of stuff that seems to be really missing. And I believe that when that's missing, if you don't understand how that, how, how it all flows and how it all works and how it all gets recorded, then it's really hard to conceptualize internal controls. I say that and bring that up because if accountants have some struggles with internal controls, what about business owners? And business that's, owners, right? And that's why I bring and, it up. And yeah, and in my book, you know, I talk about the fact that a lot of times, you know, folks will hear about or their accountants will talk to them about internal controls, but they say, oh, I don't need to put internal controls around Sally because I love Sally. And what I want to tell you is that we put controls around everybody, no matter who's sitting in what seat, because A, it keeps your money safe and B, it keeps that your employees safe in their jobs. And so we don't, that's again, going back to playing favorites, right? We want to put those processes and procedures in place, no matter who's sitting there or how well we like them or don't like them. I want to talk about one of the last chapters of your book. It's chapter 14. You give about 10, 10 plus points on what happens now that I've caught fraud. We don't have to go through the entire list, but what are some of the big points of, okay, I've uncovered it. What do I do now? Yep. So here's what I want you to know. Most of the clients who at least figure out what happened do better emotionally and in their business going forward. And so I do recommend that you at least try and figure it out. But here are my top few. Number one, um, I want you to call your uh, employment law attorney and make sure that you cover yourself in terms of how to deal with the situation. Do I put this person on leave? Do I fire them, etc.? Number two, I want you to call your insurance broker or insurance agent and ask what, uh, what employee dishonesty coverage do I have? And does it cover professional fees? Most people don't even realize they have this kind of coverage. If you don't call them today and get six figures of coverage and won't cost you a lot of money, but I want you to call that insurance person, um, and, and figure out your options there. And then number three, call, I do recommend that you call a forensic accountant. And 
And only because we really do specialize in figuring out these kinds of situations. And we really are different than your local tax accountant or your local auditing firm. And so, you know, those three things I think are important. And if you understand what the scheme was, maybe you have the in-house people that can figure it out. And that's great too, because again, just kind of take a step back, figure out what that person had access to in terms of all of the money coming in or coming out, and then verify all the money coming in made it to the bank, and then all the money going out was for the benefit of the company and not that person, and you'll probably figure out what was going on with or without a forensic accountant. See, I only want people to talk to you when they find it because <laughs> you're not just a hard-nosed numbers person. You're like a no. you're like a priest. You're like a you're you're like a a therapist because you told one person go ride a horse this weekend, have a glass I of wine, have a glass of wine and enjoy the I weekend. Do. And that person came right. back probably still stressed, but I think it wasn't as bad as it was the Thursday or Friday before. So I'm just saying that you understand the people aspect of this too. I do. And it's the most important part of my job. I always say, in, in addition to my accounting degree, there are often days I wish I had a psychology degree because this is an emotional a trauma for them, right? And it was like my client, she was wrapped around the axle and she would have stayed there all weekend wrapped around the axle crying and being upset. And I told her to go ride her horse, drink a glass of wine, take a bath and I would handle it. And let's reconvene on Monday. And so, you know, I tell people that all of the time that this is an emotional um, situation for our clients and again, as accountants, we don't always learn, we're, we're learned to be numbers people, but I've learned in this business, I've got to be a people person as well. I know just listening to you, you are a great communicator. You're a tremendous writer. I also can tell you're a humble person and I have a bet. I have a bet that you're probably not a self promoter. So I beg you plug the heck, <laughs> plug the heck out of your work in your firm you got the floor. Okay. Well, thank you. Well, I, if you would like to know more about me, you can find me at acuityforensics.com and that's A-C-U-I-T-Y forensics with an S on the end.com. I have a book. You can find it on Amazon uh, or barnesandnoble.com and that's called The Thief in Your Company. And I'm always happy to talk to people, whether you're interested in becoming an accountant or you think you've got a problem in your business, uh, you can call us at 360-573-5158. I'm happy to help uh, if I can, or at least lead you in the right direction. And we'll repeat all of that in the show notes. So if I were to call you, you, if I were to call you, is it a low level of resistance? I mean, this is not like scary, intimidating to engage with your firm, right? Oh, not at all. And people call for all kinds of problems, right? They might have somebody that's stealing from them or they've got a cash flow issue and they, they, nobody seems to have figured it out. Um, maybe they're in a business dispute with a, another a company or a former business partner and they need assistance with that or their lawyer needs assistance with that. 
Um, you know, I had a, a, a local property management company who couldn't reconcile one of their ledgers and we helped them through that issue and a, a new process and procedure so that they didn't get out of balance, you know, every month. So, um, and again, we're, we're humans here. Humans answer our phone and, um, no question is a dumb question. Last question. This is CFO Bookshelf. We ask every single author of uh, this question. What are some of your favorite books from the past, oh, the present? And sometimes that's a hard question for people. The Alchemist. The Alchemist is one of the best books I've ever read. The Four Agreements is another great book. Um, for a business book, I love Good to Great. And most of, um, is it Malcolm Gladwell? All of his his books like Blink and those sorts of things. But The Alchemist is the A number one book for me. Tiffany, this is fantastic. I'm going to be promoting this episode for a long time. I write on different platforms. My short list of forensic accountants is one firm. It's yours. So I, I'm going to be <laughs> talking you. about you for a long, long time. It's been an honor to have you on the show. Well, I appreciate it. And I appreciate the opportunity and, um, and the enthusiasm. It's really great. You are listening to CFO Bookshelf, lifelong learning for financial leaders. And now back to our host, Mark Gandy. That was good. Hey, l- let's make this show a little sticky. I want to leave you with five questions to figure out. Number one, what's the top trait required for forensic accountants? Number two, what are the fraudsters' patterns? It's in the book. It was in the interview. What one action by an owner will prevent up to 85% of most frauds ever happening? Now, 85% is subjective, but when I hear that number, I get where Tiffany is coming from. Question number four, what type of fraud occurs only 10% of the time yet has the highest loss of company funds? That's a good one. And then number five, this one was subtle and I did not know this. What is one of the first questions you need to ask your insurance agent after you've detected fraud. And again, we're making the assumption you've called your insurance agency. Five questions. You get those. You you will have gotten what we talked about. I want to leave you a couple of suggestions if you are a CEO. I have three tips. Number one in your business, and you need to do this maybe on a Saturday. Don't do this in the office. In your business, write down how someone could steal from your company. How could they steal from you? Now, the reason I like this question, because it removes the thought that no one person could steal from you and your company. So in this question, you're just, you're just asking, how could this happen? You're not being cynical. We're not asking you to be suspicious. It's just factually, how could it happen? And then number two, Okay, now what? What steps will you take to reduce 
the risk of fraud. Now, number two, let's say you do do number one. Number two may be hard. So what you can do on number three, and my tip number three is read the first three chapters, at least the first two, but try to do three. And then give it to your accountant and ask, how do I apply this book in my in my business? And, and additionally, bookmark Tiffany's website. It's Acuity Forensics. And for those of you interested in becoming a forensic accountant, and I'm keeping this very, very high level because there are organizations you can join. So again, this is high level. This is maybe you heard this like, this sounds really cool. Well, number one, this is a given. Read Tiffany's book. You've got to do it. Just, just read it. Uh, Tiffany is a people person. And one thing I picked up from the book and in this interview, again, she's a people person. So accordingly, the book Influence should be on your reading list. It's one of the most accessible books on psychology I have ever read. And it's also stood uh, the test of time. And finally, read these two books on fraud. Extraordinary Circumstances by Cynthia Cooper. In fact, it's one of my favorite books of all time in business. And then also Health South, The Wagon to Disaster by Aaron Beam, who's been on our show uh, over a year ago. Now, those two books, the, the bit there is financial statement fraud, but they'll still give you a glimpse of the people aspect of fraud and theft inside uh, the business. Hey, I'm not done yet. I have a final word uh, for Tiffany. And Tiffany, I know you're listening. So you are now one of my heroes, and I salute you for your work. Just very, very well done. And I'm proud of you. And number two, I've learned a lot from you, but here's here's what I'm gonna, going to remember for a long time. When you speak, and this is if I didn't have the video on during our Zoom-like interview, I can tell you speak with a smile on your face. It, it is so obvious. Now, now, why do I mention that? Because I would think in your line of work, you would become hardened a bit to theft. I think you would become a little bit cynical. And I don't see that. I just don't. And that blows me away. I believe the work you're doing, this is your calling and you are exceptional at it. So thank you for your work, your encouragement, and the way you're making a difference. It is time to wrap up. Keep learning, keep growing, and keep making a difference like Tiffany Couch is. I'm Mark Gandy, and this is CFO Bookshelf. (music) 